university professors spend a lot of time talking to each other about popular culture in academic journals and at academic conferences. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals and I want to talk to you. Some of the most brilliant thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard, and I'm on a mission to change that. Brilliant people, fascinating conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you are. This is the Deconstruction Workers. I am Dr. Christopher Bell. And I apologize for our lengthy hiatus there between episode nine and this, the season finale of season three. As is the case when you're dealing with academia, everyone was kind of in finals and wrapping up the semester and we just couldn't get it together. But with me on the line today is Jonathan Alexandratos. Jonathan is a professor of developmental English at Queensborough Community College in New York. Welcome back to the show, Jonathan. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Today, Jonathan and I are going to indulge because it's Christmas <laughs> and because it's the holiday season, we are both giving a present to each other, which is that for the next hour, we are going to talk about Transformers. Strap yourselves in. It's going to be the episode that never ends, folks. <laughs> True story. As we were just commenting offline, Jonathan and I could probably talk about Transformers all day long. And we're going uh, to. And, and we're going to. Both of us are not only scholars in, you know, toy studies. Jonathan does mostly action figure studies, studying toys and, and representation, that sort of thing. For my own part, I do, as many of you know, material culture and children's pedagogy, how, how we teach children through material stuff, toys. So both of us are toy scholars in some yep. very different directions. Much like the Autobots and the Decepticons, though, we are on opposite sides of the key defining issue for Toy Studies people, which is, are you an opener or do you <laughs> leave the mint in package? And That's I think, true. You know, we know how that breaks down. I open everything and, and you've got this pristine, you know, packaged collection. That's true. Technically, you are a practitioner. I am archivist. Yep. That's the practical definition, but yes. I, I was practicing some this morning. <laughs> so that's awesome. And I was archiving this morning. <laughs> so both of our shopping trips probably ended in very different places. Yes. Today, what I thought we would do for the audience is a lot of you have no idea where Transformers came from or why we have them or what the history is behind those. So I thought we would start today with the history of Transformers and then we'll talk collection and play and the things we normally get into about. Mm -hmm. Does that sound like a plan? Sounds like a plan. Roll out. <laughs> Excellent. So the origins of the Transformers actually is much farther ago than most people might think. Transformers are going to go all the way back to the early 1970s. Can I go even further? Well, sure, because the G.I. Joe molds, so yeah. Can I go even further than that? Really? Yeah. Yeah. This is actually, I mean, it's me being a stretch, but I'm actually going to go as far back as Edo, Japan. 
if, uh, wow. if you can believe that. And we're not going to, you know, I'm not going to take so much time with this because I think that the actual history that you want to hear is the exact one that you're referring to. I will simply just say that in Edo, Japan, J- Japanese people were left alone with the clockwork of the Dutch and the Spanish missionaries that had just kind of been kicked out of the country and started to kind of assemble these little robot toy. I mean, they're toys to, I guess, from our perspective, but I mean, what they were were incredibly expensive items of the elite uh, that kind of wound up and did stuff. And I believe that you can draw a straight line from folks kind of building those during that period so long ago to Transformers now. I am not going to build that straight line because that would take forever. I'm simply going to insert that as a way of saying, hey, if you're interested in the proto matter or the soup that this kind of stuff came out of, you can actually kind of make that leap, not just for Transformers, but for stuff like Gundam and Robotech and all that stuff to, to that era. But let's actually go with the true history. No, I'm glad you actually went there because one thing I think that we, particularly in the United States, but I know we have an international audience that is also largely Western. One of the things that we always think of when we think of Japan is their fascination with robots and how so much of robot culture popular culturally comes out of Japan. And that's the perfect setup. That's the reason why. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Branching off from that and moving forward in the 1940s, Hasbro, the Hasenfeld brothers here in the United States started making GI Joe. And once world war two was over and GI Joe sort of really took off in the United States, Hasbro tried to sell GI Joes in Japan, which as you might, think was probably not a great idea. Uh, The action figure of the American soldier did not sell well in Japan during American interventionism. That was, that was a really bad idea. But what did sell really well was Henshin Cyborg, which well, was sure. a direct spinoff of that. That's uh, where I'm going. I figured so, yeah. Yes. This will be probably the spirit of the episode, uh, <laughs> us completing each other's sentences like long-lost lovers. So <laughs> here we go. So 1972, Takara, Japanese toy company Takara, licenses 12 G.I. Joe molds from Hasbro and then uses those molds to create this clear plastic doll called Henshin Cyborg. And the dolls are actually really cool. If you can get your hands on them today, or if you can look up pictures online, they're really very cool. They're mechanical parts on the inside with this human, clear human shell on the outside. Yeah, sort of a bigger Microman, I guess. Well, they're, so you're working backwards. That's so Henshin Cyborg sells really well. By uh, 1974, 1975, the 12-inch tall Henshin cyborgs are starting to get way too expensive to produce. Because if you remember, in the mid-1970s, not just in Japan, but everywhere in the world, oil was starting to become a problem. And petroleum was skyrocketing in price. And so they couldn't afford to continue to make them in 12 inches. Mm -hmm. So they shrunk them down to 3.75 inches, or what now we consider to be sort of standard action figure height. And by standard action figure height, I mean that's the height that the Kenner Star Wars figures came out in, and that sort of becomes the size for action figures. G.I. Joe's that we played with in the 80s were that size, and so on and so forth. 
Yeah, we call that 118 scale. What is interesting about this particular moment is, yes, this is the sort of birth of Microman when you get into that smaller scale. But what I would like to do for a second is just unpack that word henshin and henshin cyborg, because it does give us a little foreshadowing. The word henshin means transform, and it is actually a word that comes up in a lot of Japanese TV. If you're familiar with the original Common Writer and stuff like that, you'll know that there's a key scene in which whoever's playing Common Rider screams out Henshin and then transforms. And that's what that means. So then when you get a toy like this in a conversation about Transformers, we kind of see now the, the language starting to surround the toy. I don't mean to put too fine a point on it, but I do think how language comes to define toys is interesting. We often, I think, will just say the word Transformers and kind of know what that means without pausing to think, well, somebody actually thought to call it that, and that has its own sort of history that we can kind of parse out. The transforming part of these early Henshin cyborgs were these humans that transformed internally. They had these machine parts, almost like a motorcycle engine kind of looks like inside of their body. But the further down the line we go, the more that Henshin part of Henshin cyborg really becomes the product line itself, especially once we get into these 3.75 Microman figures. So every toy released for Microman, there were only a few different actual Microman figures, the human cyborg figures. Almost every toy released for for the line for the first couple of years were just vehicles that you could put your Microman in. And so... The line transformed, interestingly enough, from being about the cyborgs to being about the vehicles. This is going to be really important because at the time, the 3.75 figures fit into vehicles that were pretty big. I mean, we're talking 18 inches, 24 inches. Those of you who played with G.I. Joe's as a kid, you understand sort of the vehicle size you need in order to actually put a figure in it. Mm -hmm. So they're actually really big. The... Further down we go, so by 1977, Microman started to change. And the new Micromen that they were releasing after 1977 started getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So by the time the Diachrone, the Diaclone line of toys, of vehicles came out, the robots were now between, you know, 12 and 18 inches in size, but the actual pilots were only about an inch tall. They were very, very little. So the people were almost non-existent in the story anymore, and it was really all about these vehicles. Right. So the Diaclone line were all of these regular vehicles that turned into, that transformed into robots. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also important to point out that in Japan around this time, and maybe slightly after it, you also see other companies starting to compete with this and starting to make their own kind of transformable items, not necessarily in the same way. But you know, some of the stuff that gets talked about now a lot in the Transformers community is stuff like the transforming lighter. It wasn't an actual lighter, but like it looked like a lighter and you could kind of unfold it into a robot. And so there is sort of this cult 
culture that's starting to bubble up in Japan of sort of a number of transformable items from a number of, of different sources. Not only that, but we also popular culturally are beginning to get the roots of the other half of Transformers, which is that the company Shoei, the Japanese company Shoei, was starting to put out its first proto-anime television programs. The ones that we're the most familiar with here in the United States are things like Speed Racer. But in that same animation genre as Speed Racer, Shoei also puts out a program called Battle for the Planets. And Battle for the Planets is really important because it is a show about pilots, space pilots, who fly around in ships, and those ships come together to form a giant robot. And it's sort of the proto-Voltron, but we're going to get a lot of those Voltron-y kinds of shows at the same time that this is happening. So things like Shogun, for example, there's a lot of them that are going to come out pretty rapidly after Battle for the Planets. So that part of it can't be discounted because that's going to lead the Diaclone line to split and another company called, uh, I forget the name of the company, but they were working on a television show called Super Dimension Fortress. Oh yeah, you're talking about what eventually became Robotech, so... Right, Super Dimension Fortress is going to become Macross and right. Macross is going to become Robotech. Right. Which is also planes that turn into robots. It's also interesting to note that around this time, you are also seeing Super Sentai, the live action version of all this kind of start to take hold in Japan. Super Sentai series eventually becomes Power Rangers in the US. You can kind of recognize it through that, but we are still years before it becomes the the specific spinoff that becomes Power Rangers. So there is kind of that live action angle to it as well. Right. So we're getting all of these shows about people getting into vehicles that turn into robots. So backing up to the Microman line, the Takara line, Microman at the time were these one inch pilots and these vehicles. And the vehicles really take over the micro change line. The car robot line really takes over as the big part of Diaclone. It's the big part of the, of the toy line. And if you were to look at the early Diaclones, you would very quickly recognize a lot of the first run of Transformers in yeah. that line. Almost exactly. They're the exact same figures, they're just different colors. Yeah. So for example, the Optimus Prime figure, the flat-nosed Mack truck with the trailer, they came in like four different colors. They were like a convoy. The original name for Optimus Prime was Convoy. Right. Because there were supposed to be a bunch of them, and they were all supposed to turn into secret robots, right? There was the fire engine that mm -hmm. eventually becomes Inferno. There was the Formula One racer that eventually becomes Mirage. Mirage yeah. There's the there's the Lacia Stratos, which eventually becomes Wheeljack. There's mm -hmm. the Corvette Stingray, which later will become Trax in the second wave of stuff. The Army Jeep, which will become Hound. Mm -hmm. There's the Porsche 935 Turbo that'll eventually become Jazz. All of those are in that first run. And the big one for the first run was there were a whole bunch of different versions of 
the Datsun Fairlady Z. The Datsun Fairlady Z was the, one of the biggest cars in Japan at the time. It was like the new kind of sports car. Those of you who are familiar with Transformers, you will recognize that car as the mold that becomes Prowl and Smokescreen and Blue Streak and Silver Streak and, and, and. Mm -hmm. So that line then gives birth to a whole bunch of other kinds of toys. So we get the F-15 fighter jets, we get the construction vehicles, or, or what we're called the Baku-10 attack robos, mm -hmm. which I love. Yes. And by 1982, Takara is very, very successful. Right. What I love about this era and everything, of course, you, you say is true. And, and those those names, as you were listing them off, that was wonderful. If you want to see sort of the, the remnants of all this, just pick up your G1 brawn and look on the hood of brawn. And you'll notice that there's an M etched into a part of it, possibly under your Autobot sticker. And the reason that's there is because it was created for the Microman microchange line, obviously starting with M. So you kind of have these really interesting remnants that if you're actually looking closely at your figures, you'll go, huh, why is that there? And the answer is because it's from a different line of toys entirely even better if you look at the original line of seekers if you look at a lot of the original autobot cars particularly ones like hound there are spaces in those figures for you to put your microman right right that's what i always love about that and boys like uh ironhide right the original ironhide where we got ironhide here and it doesn't look at all like Ironhide on the show. And the reason for that is it was one of those toys where it has like a cockpit and you put right. your... And you go, why doesn't he have a head? And the right. reason is he wasn't supposed to. Right. He was just supposed to have a windshield for the pilot to look out of. Yeah. The other one that's really interesting is the original G1 Dinobots. Because the original G1 Dinobots all have a, a gray plastic flip-up piece on their back. And they have that because you were supposed to flip the piece up and put your Microman on their back. And they mm -hmm. were supposed to drive it. That's the Microman Diaclone holdover once you get the once we get into those first run of toys. Right. So nineteen eighty two, everything's cruising along really great. Nineteen eighty three, global recession. Right. And as the Japanese economy is sort of plunged into this fairly serious recession it became harder and harder to make non-essential products because the Japanese economy, unlike our economy, is landlocked. Mm -hmm. So because they were in financial difficulty, the company Taka Toku, who was making Macross, they had to sell off a bunch of their properties, one of which was the mold to their Valkyrie mm -hmm. model. For us in Transformers lore, that's the model that's going to become Jetfire. It's a really interesting moment because it sets off what will eventually turn into a court case, but we're not going to jump ahead to that yet. What I find interesting about the early 80s in Japan, though, is this culture that we're talking about is becoming part of the cultural zeitgeist there. But Hasbro is also starting to have a presence at their toy shows. So on our side, we are kind of aware on the corporate level that this stuff is going on. And people are kind of bringing back these trinkets from Japan being like, 
huh, it's kind of cool that, you know, this transforms into that. Wonder if we could do anything with it. So by the time this recession hits that you're talking about, toy executives are like ready to buy up whatever they could kind of find. And so there is kind of this this awareness. Sometimes we, we get into the habit of thinking this stuff operates in kind of its own bubble, but it doesn't quite. Things are starting to to cross the water a little bit. Absolutely. I mean, it would not be too much of an exaggeration to say there were lots of Hasbro development executives sort of hanging around like vultures mm-hmm. in Japan trying to pick off things as companies were going out of business. One of the things that Hasbro is able to do because of this recession is leverage Takara. What Hasbro does is comes to is they come to Japan, they come to Takara and they say, look, we have licensed you our G.I. Joe molds. Those G.I. Joe molds produced Microman, which produced Diaclones, which produced these robot toys. What we would like to do is we would like to be the sole distributor of these robot toys in America. Mm-hmm. You can continue to produce them here in Japan. We will produce them in America. And then everyone wins. Right? Right. Now, in reality, what they're trying to do is they're trying to get their G.I. Joe molds back. Right. That's that's sort of the uh, that's sort of the under the underpinning of this conversation is they're really angling to get back their GI Joe stuff. Right. So they're they're trying to make a deal. They're like, "We'll take your weird robot toys. See what we can do with them in America. You give us back our GI Joe stuff." Yep. And and correct me if I'm wrong too, but in the in the 70s, Mego had already brought over Microman, right? Like some of that stuff, is that true? Yes. Some of it has already started to creep into the United States. Right. Uh, yeah, through a company called Mego. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So Hasbro comes to the United States with literally a cardboard box full of these weird robot toys. <laughs> and they go into meetings and they're showing them to people and people are like, these are complicated. American kids aren't going to like them very much. They're weird. So then, someone at Hasbro has the brilliant, brilliant idea. The, the idea of all ideas. Which is, they had already been working with Marvel Comics on G.I. Joe stuff. Mm-hmm. So, they said, let's take these robot toys to the guys at Marvel and have them create a, create a world for us. Create a storyline. Create a thing. What are these robots and what do they do? And... So they take this box over to Marvel and they bring two guys into a room. One guy named Jim Shooter, who at the time was the editor-in-chief at Marvel, and one guy named Bob Budiansky. Bob Budiansky was, I believe he was on Fantastic Four and Daredevil at the time. Mm-hmm. And he says, look, we have this box of toys. What we're going to do is we're going to send over two of our development people are advertising people really one of whom is a guy named joe bacall joe bacall is going to become the godfather of transformers mm-hmm. and we're gonna have them just kick around with you and see what you guys can come up with so they go to this meeting there's a guy standing behind a table he literally is holding up each toy and he's like this is a robot and it can turn into this and what can you guys do with it and so joe bacall And Jim Shooter and Bob Budiansky sat around and were like, okay, well, guns are bad. 
So all the bad guys have to be the gun stuff. Kids like cars, so cars will be the good guys. Planes, well, those are mostly, these are mostly military planes, so those will also be the bad guys. And that's how they divided up the line. Yep. So Transformers is interesting in that all of the civilian stuff that helps people, those are all the good guys. And all of the military stuff, those are the bad guys. And let's also appreciate what's going on here, too, on a, on a bigger level. The idea of taking characters that are one thing in Japan, bringing them over, kind of stripping them of that identity, and then saying, okay, for our society here, how do we then divide these up and assign them into kind of these new roles? That actually sets the tone for really the next 20 years worth of kids' toys and kids' programming because, and not to continually sort of go back to Power Rangers, but the other thing I am is a huge Power Rangers fan, and Power Rangers is much the same deal. It's like you see that that Japan has this long history of a show. You take these characters back over here and you say, oh, okay, well, these ancient fighters or whatever are now going to be called Jason Trini and whoever from Angel Grove, and you reassigned them characters. The only reason we can do that really is because Transformers proved how successful that is with the box of toys that you're talking about right now. So it's really a momentous occasion that sets a shockwave out throughout the next 20 years worth of programming and even beyond that too. I mean, in terms of just importing stuff from Japan and basically considering our work done, Robotech is the is in the same boat, but I know we're kind of talking about that a little bit now. Right. The other thing that you can't fail to appreciate is the fact that they went to Marvel and Marvel exercised their continual subversive streak in America. Because think about how much of a statement, how subversive it is now in retrospect that in 1983, at the height of Reaganism, <laughs> the, the Cold War king... Marvel says, look, the only guys who are going to be good guys are people who are civilians and anyone military or associated with guns, they're automatically the bad guys. Right. And yet the other irony that we can attach to that is all of this is impossible without Reagan because Reagan deregulates the FCC and yes. basically allows kids programs to be 30 minute long commercials, which we've covered several times on this podcast. Yes. Right? I feel like I've said that exact line, the Reagan deregulations, right? Right. right. So you've got the cold war King Reagan deregulating children's advertising. Not only that, but you've got this toy line that was born of G.I. Joe, which is a, an essentially pro-American military propaganda toy that then begats this, this storyline in which the universe itself is set up that the more militaristic you are, the more you are the bad guys. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's amazing. It is. So, Bob Budiansky and, and Joe Bacall and Jim Shooter, they have these stories. And then... They made it really clear who's the good guy, really clear who's the bad guy. And then it's Joe Bacall's son, Jay, who comes up with the name The Transformers. Now you've got all of the pieces in place. 
by the way, there's also another guy in this mix named Denny O'Neill, Dennis O'Neill. Dennis O'Neill was another Marvel guy. I think he was working on, if you know anything about comic books, he created Ra's al Ghul, mm-hmm. Batman villain. He was the editor of G.I. Joe comics at the time. So he that's why he was also in on this. So all of the original iconic characters come from the new Micro-Men line. Megatron, Soundwave, Bumblebee, Cliffjumper. They were all vehicles and accessories from that new Micro-Men line. Optimus Prime, the Dinobots, the Seekers, Starscream, Thundercracker, and Skywarp, the Constructicons, those are all Diaclones. Mm -hmm. The ones we talked about earlier, those were all from the first line of Diaclones. And then you get later Jetfire, which comes from that Macross line. Mm -hmm. So this is the Transformers canon, which then Bob Budiansky is responsible for naming every character, like picking all the American names for characters. There's this really cool thing floating around on the internet, this really cool set of images of his original like notebook paper with all the names that characters could have had. Yeah. Where he's just taking words that sound cool and throwing them together. That's how you get Starscream mm-hmm. and Skywarp. He's literally just taking words and he's like, I'm going to shove these things together and see what happens. And by the way, I love that a lot of that stuff is coming out now. The, the proto-matter that forms Transformers. What I heard at Comic-Con, at New York Comic-Con this past year, I went to a panel on Transformers and there was just a recent book that came out about Transformers art. And they were like, yeah, you know, we're, you know the only reason we have a lot of Transformers art now is because literally somebody went to this uh, furniture reseller and this woman years and years ago had salvaged a filing cabinet and never opened it. And then many years after the fact, finally opened it and inside were like all of these original Transformers drawings that are now out there and they got access to those to put in their book. And it's just total luck of the draw, but I love it. That's amazing. Yeah. That's absolutely amazing. So... Here's the fun part about Transformers. They bought the line. They brought it to the United States. They put out this first run. They have this partnership with Marvel where they're, you know, Marvel's going to make the comic books. And then they're going to, the comic books are ridiculous. The the Mm. first like three or four issues are ridiculous. They're literally just toys standing in a line saying their name and what (laughs) they do. It's it's hilarious. There's these giant panels where they're just like, and I'm Bumblebee, and I, you know, I'm human relations, and blah blah blah. Like it's really funny. And then there's also the cartoon series, and all three of these things—the cartoons, the the toys, and the comics—all come out right around the same time. Which is funny because Tonka uh. had already beat. Hasbro to the market. <laughs> so Tonka had a had a similar plan. They hear what's going on and they are able to produce faster than Hasbro is, and they produce GoBots. <laughs> and Tonka gets the bigger license for television because while Sunbow is really an extension of a marketing firm. Mm-hmm. Tonka gets a license with Hanna-Barbera. Hanna-Barbera being, you know, Yogi Bear. and Right. Literally every cartoon you remember. Great Ape. Yeah, like <laughs> all, this, all the big 70s cartoons. <laughs> Flintstones and Jetsons and that stuff. So 
you know, Tonka gets this huge contract with Hanna-Barbera to produce Challenge for the GoBot, Challenge of the GoBots. And people think that GoBots are the knockoffs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's why I was laughing when you brought it up. I was like, oh, GoBots. And even, even today, knowing all the history, I still can't help but walk into toy stores and go, oh, those are the knockoff Transformers. And it's totally not true. And I also happen to really like Tonka and the GoBots, yet I still, for some reason, kind of don't buy them. You know, I never really bought them because they suck. <laughs> I don't and know. No, they're terrible okay. toys. No, so but here's no, the thing. Every every one of the GoBots that I actually liked all ended up with my spare Transformer stickers. Yeah. Like I like I adopted them into their factions, you know. Yeah. So the very very best GoBot, the the cleanest transformation of any of the GoBots is Scooter. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and Scooter became an Autobot almost immediately. Yeah. Almost immediately. And pretty much everyone else was kind of was kind of garbage, you know? <laughs> I Leader you know, 1 became a Decepticon. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. Even though he's the leader of the good guys in GoBots, he's a Decepticon. Right, right. I think the reason I like them so much is because some of them are just so darn corny that I, I just oh my I can't help but love them. The leader of the Transformers bad guys is Megatron, and he transforms into a pistol. The leader yeah. of the bad guy GoBots is Psykill, and <laughs> guess what he transforms into? A motorcycle. Like, yeah. they were so not clever. No. Even Scooter, who transforms into a scooter. Yeah, it's also fun. Like when you when you realize that now you can kind of find these these GoBots toys that were essentially transforming squirt guns and cap guns that don't really seem to have much of a name. They're just called like Shogun GoBots or something, and they have the absolute simplest transformation imaginable. But they're so darn cute, and they're little guns. Right. My favorite, my absolute favorite of the original GoBots line was the fact that they were getting stomped. By Transformers. <laughs> yeah. So Transformers puts out Transformers the movie. And the last gasp effort for GoBots was they put out their own movie. And it was about the Rock Lords. I love the Rock Lords. <laughs> robots that transform into rocks. Listen, if you are a robot in disguise, what better disguise is there than a rock? Have you right? ever passed a rock and gone, oh, I'll bet that's a robot? No, because you would sound like a lunatic, but yet that's where the actual robots are. If you ever have a chance to just Google GoBots Rock Lords, you should do that. They are amazing. They're great. Eventually, they started making them with like fur on them and stuff. It's, and yes, I know you might be thinking why rocks don't have fur in my experience. That is correct. You would be correct in that. <laughs> they do not. So I think now would be a good time for us to sort of pause, take a break, do some commercials, and then we'll come back after the jump and we'll get back into it. So we'll be back in two and two. Hi, my name is Jonathan Alexandrados. Two years ago, I started coming out as non-binary. I thought coming out was the end of my worries, but really, it was just the beginning. New questions started popping up. Who am I now? Have I always been this way? Will the imposter syndrome ever end? In order to get answers, I started talking to the ones who have been there my entire life. My toys. I have a substantial toy collection that includes action figures, dolls, play sets, promotional items, and much more, some of which have been in my possession since 1986, the year I was born. But when I started talking to them, I didn't expect the toys to talk back. 
It turns out they've been living rich, full lives filled with questions, concerns, triumphs, and defeats all right under my nose. Ever wonder what it feels like for a Barbie to come out of her package? How about who a G.I. Joe villain is once you strip away all the armor? And when five robots join to form one, what happens when the red one is pissed at the yellow one? Join me as I preserve both their stories and mine in a new interview-based podcast, My Plastic Life, a journey through the history of me and my toys. Coming December 2019. Thanks for taking a very quick break from the Deconstruction Workers podcast. I just wanted to remind you that recently we launched our brand spanking new Instagram page. So you can follow us on Instagram for pop culture trivia and for new episodes and for discussion about each episode. Join in and talk about what you've heard and what you think and we'll interact with you in that way. The Instagram page is really going to be the way that the Deconstruction Workers podcast workers are going to be able to interact with you, the fans. So follow us at Deconstruction Workers. Thanks. And now back to the show. And we're back. So now that we've done some of the history of Transformers, what I thought we would do is get into... So Jonathan and I come from two very different fan spaces because as another one of our deconstruction workers, Rick Stevens and I talk about a lot as media scholars is the fact that we sometimes forget Jonathan is much younger than the two of us. (laughs) And so because of that, there are some gaps in our fandoms. And so what I thought I would do is talk a little bit about how I got into Transformers fandom And then that will bridge into how Jonathan got into Transformers fandom. And then that will let us show you eras of early Transformers fan culture. Yeah. So my entry point into the Transformers is sort of a two-part story. Part one is the fact that I was nine years old when the show started. And I had the chicken pox. And I was confined to my room. And it was during school, because Transformers debuts in September. And uh, so September 1984, I am housed up in my room because I have the chicken pox. And this television show comes on the air. And I happen to be home right after school because I was sick. And so I was watching after school cartoons. It comes on. And it immediately grabbed me. Because if you've ever seen the first three-episode arc of Transformers, it's really well-staged. Oh, they're great. And so I was very immediately into it. And because I was able to play on the sympathy of having chickenpox, I was able to convince my mom that I had to have this thing. So my mom went to the store, and my guess is probably picked the first thing off the shelf that she saw, And she brought it home. That was the G1 Skywarp. G1 Seeker Plane Skywarp. He's black and purple. He's bad guy. Now, Skywarp in the Transformers universe is, you know, he's a bit player. He's a lackey. He's a henchman. But in my universe, he was the star of the show. Because he was the first one I had and he was 
the best one that I had. And so in my little nine-year-old Transformers universe, Skywarp was Megatron. Skywarp was the leader of the Decepticons. Even today, as an adult, I still have literally every single version of Skywarp that has ever been released. There are like 30 of them. I have every single one. So Skywarp was my sort of linchpin in that early Transformers fandom. And so that's the first part of it was I, it hit me at exactly the right time when I was the target market, which is vulnerable kid who knows how to beg for stuff. So that was that. Three months later is Christmas of 1984. Christmas of 1984 was a really pivotal point for me because it was the point in which two things happened. Number one, it was the point in which I realized my family as a whole was pretty bad with money. And number two, my parents were in the process of separating. They would be divorced within a year. So because of those two things sort of coming together, slamming into each other, for Christmas of 1984, I benefited from the boon of let's just have one more good Christmas. <laughs> Perfectly timed. Perfectly timed with Transformers <laughs> so that I legitimately, for the Christmas of 1984, got almost every single one of the first line. <sighs> Almost every single one. I got G1 Megatron. I got G1 Optimus Prime. These toys that are now worth thousands and thousands yeah. of dollars a piece, I got them all together at the same time in the same Christmas. If you could go back to yourself then, would you be like, don't open those? Yes. I would be like, look, kid, here's what <laughs> we're going to do. We're going to buy another one of every one of these and we're going to play with those. And then these other ones, we're just going to put in a closet somewhere. At which point you would say, get out of my house, you stranger. <laughs> right? Hey, toy collector, dude, get out. So I got what at the time was probably, I don't know, $500, $600 worth of Transformers. Probably more than that. And that was my, I was hooked. I was almost 40 years later, I'm still collecting them. So I was the original target market. I was the original target market. And... So my expectations of Transformers have always been centered around G1, Generation 1, the original Transformers mythos, the original run. And for me, the original run, this is really important, the original run of Transformers is from Inception through Transformers the movie. Transformers the movie is the break point for a lot of fans my age. And the reason for that is because Transformers the movie killed off most of our favorite characters mm -hmm. in what would become toy animation legend. Transformers the movie killed off almost the entire run of Transformers toys. And it was because the producers and directors of, of that film were like, well, we're just clearing off the shelves for new toys. And they didn't understand the connection that kids had made to the characters. It was devastating for the Transformers line as a toy line. Transformers the movie killed the franchise, destroyed the franchise. The, sh the television show was off the air within a year. Yeah. Transformers and, and the movie. And those episodes that did follow are weird. They're weird and they're not good. Right. And people would just, we, it turned us all off. Why on earth would we invest in this show anymore when we, when it was a Game of Thrones, Red Wedding kind of a moment <laughs> for children? Yeah. We just couldn't, we couldn't hack it. And so we stopped collecting. My, even my collection line 
I really don't have a lot of the stuff that comes after the movie. I collected a lot of the Scramble City stuff, what's known as Scramble City stuff. But that's all. that all actually has its roots before the movie. Right. But the new characters, Rodimus Prime is not my prime. <laughs> no. Like that's, <laughs> I, I don't collect him. That's the end of Generation 1. And then there's this weird period of time where they're still trying to make money off of their original stuff. So that's what we refer to as Generation 2. And then the Generation 2 line, they basically take all the original stuff and they recolor it in all these weird Art Deco colors. The television show is kind of janky. And then it goes dormant. But there is one thing that came out in G2 that we have to sort of mention, which is me. I mean, right. So G2 emerges basically right as my consciousness of Transformers as a thing emerges. So by that time, the only way I could really watch Transformers was either on VHS, which I rented from either the library or the local Gemstone video, which I did often as much as my parents would let me or catch them somehow in syndication, in, in reruns and things. So basically, if I could sort of dive into my Transformers story now, I will, but I just want to make sure before I do that that you didn't have any other thing you wanted to insert before nope, I do that. Nope, that was, that was my entry. Okay, cool. So, so now we're up, now in the timeline, we are to Young Jonathan. Young Jonathan, oh boy. Okay, I'll try not to cry. <laughs> so I love, first of all, I love hearing your story, Chris. I've heard it like a couple of times and I love it each time because there's so much wonderful sort of personal young fan connecting in there that's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I have something similar. So for me, my Transformer story is separated into two parts. There's before the thing and after the thing. And I'm being very vague about what the thing is right now because I don't want to give it away. So let's start with before the thing. And I promise you that I will get to what the thing is very soon. So before the thing is G2, G2 Transformers. And in G2, I have a couple of memories that really strike out, out to me. One of them is playing with my friend Andy Wong's Megatron, which by then was a tank that was green and purple camouflage, which I don't know what that's supposed to camouflage you from, but it looked cool. <laughs> and I, I really did enjoy that. I think I just enjoyed it really because of the bright colors. I mean, I'm, you know, sort of 90s kid, right? Addicted to kind of the the high wattage neon colors that, that G2 has. But my next sort of formative memory of getting a G2 toy for myself was when we went to Greece as a family, when I was very, very, very young. And I remember being allowed to get one toy over there. And Transformers was huge in Greece. So I don't know how many of you are familiar with Lambatha candles are basically candles that are used in Greek Easter. They're lit up and uh, held during church services. Well, in Greece, it's these are a huge industry, and it's very common for toys to be attached to them. The Transformers were actually attached to Lambatha candles for for Greek Easter. So we can read into that all sorts of wonderful metaphorical things um, about transformatives, both transformative moments, both Christian and otherwise, but let's not. We can just simply <laughs> say that it was big. So I got Air Raid, who's one of the, the planes in the, the G2 line. There's also a G1 version, but I mean, that's kind of what you were talking about with the repaints. I remember getting the, the G2 version and I really loved that toy. I loved it so much. I loved the way things like kind of tucked into to other parts of the Transformer, and I just love the way it came together. It's relatively small, but I, I loved it dearly. So that was kind of an artifact from a period where I just knew I was in love with this 
text. Then the thing happens, and the thing in in my universe is Beast Wars. So Beast Wars comes out, and me and a lot of my my friends are super excited because we all knew Transformers. We all knew what Transformers was. We had seen whatever limited amount of it we could see based on what was rerunning on TV and VHS. But now we knew that we were going to be able to get in on the ground floor of a new Transformers series that not only was new, but also computer animated, which at the time was a big deal. So I remember we all just started watching that and fell in love with that show. And and just it, that show grew right alongside us. So it starts off kind of giving you something that is a bit more serious than the original cartoon was, but it still had its lighter moments, still had its funnier moments. And of course, all of the Transformers are animals. The The thing that was a little tough was that I was kind of addicted to the cars and the planes, but I also kind of fell in love pretty quickly with some of the animals. Optimus Primal took me a, a bit longer, but Megatron had me right away as a T-Rex. I mean, that was, that was pretty darn cool because that was also right alongside Jurassic Park. So you're just like, oh, wow, this just makes Jurassic Park even cooler if they all can actually be robots as well. So Beast Wars was just delightful and then and i know this is a point of contention between us and that's fine you're wrong but that's fine after that came the best of the transformers series that is an opinion held really just by me but that's fine i'm i'm happy to stand alone which is beast machines which offered kind of a darker even darker sort of story in the computer animated style that also brought in cars and planes and such and gave me some actual like real philosophy to chew on right when I was thinking that like the the simplest philosophy was so cool. So there are real questions in that show asks about spirituality and God and conformity that I was just getting so into this time. Yeah, by now we're talking about like a tween teenager, you know, type who just wanted to sort of feel smart. And I guess I wasn't quite a teenager yet, but it, I was on my way. And that show kind of did that. So that was my introduction. So timeline-wise, Beast Wars debuts in 1996, so almost 12 years after Generation 1 debuts in 1984. And so, you know, you can do the math. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, am, I am nine years old when it first starts. Beast Wars starts when I am in college. And you know what's funny about that? You were nine. I was 10 when Beast Wars started. So isn't that an interesting age for getting in tune with this stuff? As I said, Jonathan and I come in in two very different... We come in at the same life point, but we come in in two very different chronological points. Both of us come in when we are kids, but when Jonathan's a kid, I'm going to college. And so Beast Wars, to me... I really wanted to hate it. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to hate Beast Wars because the toys are really not great. I love them. From my standpoint, okay, fair as a G1 collector, they are what we call, now we're really going to super nerd on you for a second, uh, dear <laughs> listener, but they are full of what Transformers collectors call kibble. And what that means is... I resent that. That's a slur. <laughs> what that means is... 
that for for Transformers fans, the engineering of the toy is a part of what separates the really good ones from the really bad ones. And so the more complex the engineering and the more the robot hides its what's called alt mode or hides its vehicle or cassette tape or in this case animal mode, the more it hides that as a robot, the better that we say the engineering is, the less kibbled the figures are. And so, you know, take something like Soundwave, original G1 Soundwave. Aside from the fact that he still has tape deck door in his chest, he is very non-kibbled. He is a very streamlined figure. Something like Beast Wars Megatron, where he doesn't even have hands because one of his hands is literally a full head of a (laughs) T-Rex, is the definition of kibbled. It's lazy engineering. But that's what it was on this show, right? I mean, that's just a big canon, that's all. What I find cool about it is that it takes parts that you can identify as something else and challenges your understanding of them so that the head does become the canon that Megatron shoots out of in Beast Wars. Now, of course, that being said, yes, like if you're used to sort of the G1, which also, of course, had more die cast in it, or I guess just die cast at all, because I don't think Beast Wars had any real uh, die cast to speak of, then yeah, you're definitely going to notice a difference that may be disappointing, depending on your tastes. Now, the thing that Beast Wars did add that G1 did not, that then later will become a functional part of Transformers toys, is it added the ball and socket joint. Mm -hmm. So the ball and socket joint that is a plastic piece that snaps into another plastic piece, that changes things because you need less screws. And because you need fewer screws, it gives you more articulation. If you're interested to know why action figures and articulation is a big deal, you can go back to Jonathan and I's episode in season one where we spend half the episode talking about why articulation matters. For uh, We won't rehash that here. But the more articulation you can get in the figure, the better the figure is. And G1 toys, for as good as they were, had no articulation. Most G1 figures did not even have knees or elbows. They were stiff. And so the addition of that ball and socket joint gives you much more flexibility in how you play with the toy. So I will give Beast Wars that. Beast Wars thanks you. For all of its kibbled nonsense, at least it gave us the ball and socket joint. Okay, boomer. Not a boomer. I know. But the cool part about Beast Wars was, as much as I wanted to hate it because I hated the toys so much, the television show was really good. Yeah. It was really, really good. It was really nuanced. It had a real science fiction vibe that G1 did not have, even though it was about robots from space. G1 was toy commercial. Mm-hmm. It was it was a half an hour toy commercial. Yeah. Beast Wars was a sci-fi show that happened to have merchandise. Yep. It had a different sensibility about it. Very much so, yeah. It recognized the fact that it didn't have to be a commercial. That it could be an actual television show and kids would still want to buy the toys. Mhm. And so it, it benefited from the wisdom of G1, benefited from what it had learned. And Beast Wars is a pretty magnificent television series. Yes. 
succeeded only by beast machines but here's the thing like by the time beast machines rolled around i was no longer that into transformers as a mythos right at that point transformers had become it had shifted into you know an, a collection object and right? I, I will just say this though with beast machines and, and sort of just setting aside my my fandom because you're making a really good point about how we should study what each one gives the transformers universe as a whole and with beast machines so the toys themselves i love the toys but they are as fragile as can be some of them for whatever reason they discovered this great ball and socket joint thing with beast wars and then for beast machines they're like we're just going to put a bunch of screws in these in really brittle plastic and give them to kids. That'll work, right? And it totally does not work. But the thing that I found kind of gutsy about Beast Machines, and this is probably why it didn't last that long, is they made a show that didn't have that many characters in it. It had a, a core team of Maximals on Cybertron. And then you figure you would create a bunch of enemies, but they really just created three enemy generals and Megatron. And then the generals had minions that all looked just like they did. So there really wasn't this diverse landscape of toys. And you could almost hear Hasbro's face palm as you watch this. You're just like, oh my God, was there a meeting where they were just like, oh great, so new uh, Transformers, cool. Um, so are you going to have lots of toys? And they're just like, no, no, no. There's really just like three bad guys and like five good guys Yeah, in, in the whole show. Yeah, that's right. And Hasbro, this is like Hasbro's probably nightmare. So I don't know. There's a part of me that admires that. I mean, it's a little bit, maybe I'm making it into more subversive an action than it actually is, but I'm just kind of like, wow, you really went all story. I mean, they got Marv Wolfman as a writer who wrote some of the best Batman in the 70s and created some amazing episodes. But if we want to sort of critique its toyetic nature, I think we absolutely can. But it's full circle back to its origins of one character mold that is a part of a convoy. So, yes, there's only four characters, but you have to buy ten of them in order to have the battle in your living room. Yes. In the way that one of the things we talked about in the first season about toyetic texts is directed play how the text suggests to the child how they're supposed to play with the toy. And one of the ways they do that is through recreation. I want to recreate the battle scene from the television show in my living room. Well, if I'm going to do that correctly, I need to buy enough of these throwaway clone characters that I can shoot a whole bunch of them in my living room. Exactly. And what Chris is getting at here also is something really, really central to what we do, which is we study transmedial texts. So that is a word that comes up in our work a lot. Transmedial, the idea that there is a text or something like a toy that is way more focused on, on world building than a singular narrative. So you can do the way the character acts in the comic versus the way the character acts as a toy versus the way a character acts in a spinoff movie and you put all that stuff together across different media and you get multiple modes of storytelling which is really cool and i mean it's a central thing that transformers evolved into i would argue that this idea of transmediation really gets its foundation with texts like the transformers oh i would agree in 1984 because they intentionally transmediated it right <laughs> you know <laughs> they intentionally put it on as many platforms as they could 
get it onto, basically. Exactly. So the Transformers has a big place in my own fandom culture, my own day-to-day, literal day-to-day fandom culture. I have an entire room in my house that is just full of this archived Transformers collection. And what's the address on that? Uh... <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> uh, this this collection that now numbers in the thousands of, of things, whether that's boxed toys or loose toys. I do have a fairly substantial loose collection, although that loose connection is my original collection. It's the toys I played with when I was a kid. One of the things that I've done is, as an adult, I have started tracking down either the reissues, because Hasbro's been doing a lot of reissues. Um, So I've been tracking down the reissues of the original toys in the original packaging. Or there are several probably bootleg Chinese companies Mm -hmm. that are making really well done, presentationally well done, copies of what the original packaging and distribution looked like. So you can get a box, a G1 box of a wheeljack that looks exactly as that G1 boxed wheeljack looked like on the shelf. Word on the street is if you actually open those boxes and play with those toys, they are not very good. Right. They're not they're not very well constructed in the paints off and and whatever, but you know, to be a boxed representation of the original work, they are serving my purposes just fine. Right. And and it's even cooler to think today about how, I don't know if folks follow a particular Instagram account called Lek, L-E-K Customs, but what this particular person does is they'll get a Transformers toy and cell shade it, which basically means that they will give that Transformers toy the same shading that it has in the cartoon cells. So like, for example, when you get an Optimus Prime, the windows are clear plastic well this person will shade the plastic so that it's kind of got that bluish whitish tint to it that kind of reflects a cartoon program which i think is a really cool way of taking some sort of artifact and and making it your own but also even more sort of accurate to the show i also realized by the way by like sort of cutting to now that we're definitely jumping over a lot of good stuff but i'm assuming we certainly should because if we don't do that then as chris said at the beginning of the episode we're here all day to be fair my plan was to stop at the end of beast wars <laughs> so because everything because everything that follows beast wars is hot garbage what? until until like three minutes ago three minutes so, ago well okay yeah. so three minutes ago sort of waxing hyperbolic yeah i guess so so there's this huge swath in the middle where everything is the hottest of hot garbage (laughs) and then it comes back with transformers animated so but that's you know again that's what six years ago seven years ago yeah and we would agree on that although you know i was recently talking to someone who was like oh i came in with transformers armada and i'm like well cool so you would probably really (laughs) vouch for that i mean you know my instant reaction was oh i'm so sorry but right exactly because armada's terrible (laughs) as a television program yeah yeah uh, i would agree i will say that transformers as a toy line was doing some pretty interesting stuff with What's called what we refer to as the Chug yes. line. I always love that acronym, Chug. <laughs> the Chug line. <laughs> yes. Which is actually four different right. 
Transformers line. The CHUG acronym, the C-H-U-G, stands for Transformers Classics, Transformers Henkai, Transformers United, and Transformers Generations. Mm -hmm. And those are the releases from both the United States and Japan from 2006 to 2019. There are four different lines. The Classics line were sort of reimagined G1 figures. The United and Generations line were really an attempt to modernize the original G1 designs. So if you get a Generations, for example, the for me, the king of the Generations figures is the Generations Metroplex. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. So Generations Metroplex... Metroplex was a city, obviously. Uh, it was a it was a robot who turned into an entire city. It figured pretty heavily in the Transformers the movie, and then in the weirdo episodes that sort of followed it. So it's the end of the G1 line. But the Transformers Metroplex toy was pretty big. Yep. It wasn't big enough that you could life-size fit your toys inside of the city mode, but it was pretty big. They took that figure for the Generations line and turned it into the biggest Transformer ever made at the time. It is three feet tall. Um, it, yeah. is, it, it, is a, it is a monstrosity of plastic. It is one of the very few modern Transformers toys that I actually bought two of yeah. because my, my kid side of me needed to play with it. Like yeah. I needed to open it up mess around with it and put the stickers on it. Well, and, and they knew something you know. really smart with that toy, which is that all of the fans of Transformers G1 now has disposable income pretty much. So if we make this $100 or something item that's really cool and really big, then people will buy two of them because we want that toy. And I don't blame you for doing that. That's, I mean, exactly what I would do if I weren't such an opener already. Right. No, they played against my... They played against my archivist nature versus my transformers kid yeah they and then they double down on that by the way they super got me in the current transformers line which is transformer siege mm -hmm. they totally got me because one of my very favorite toys from g1 was a toy that you couldn't buy in the stores mm -hmm. you had to collect on the back of each transformers oh, yeah. package there were points and if you collected enough points, you could send them into Hasbro with, a, with you know, just cover shipping and handling. And for basically five bucks, mm -hmm. they would send you a collector's only exclusive. Mm -hmm. So that collector's only exclusive was a toy called Reflector. Yeah. And Reflector was actually three robots and they transformed together to form a camera. And it was the, at the time, in 1986 or whatever, it was the marker of, you're a real collector. Like, you're a, you're a real Transformers fan because you saved up your points and you sent away and you got Reflector. Reflector didn't even have a box. Reflector came in like a white cardboard box. <laughs> no box art, no, you know, what are called tech specs, which is the character information on the back. None of that. You also had Just, to get it like in a back alley, like you were getting a, a cocaine or something. Like <laughs> someone just handed it to you, you know, then disappeared. No, you had to, you had to, if you were me, you had to get a white piece of paper and you had to lovingly 
scotch tape mm. each one of your little points, proof of purchase points, into this very complicated matrix of here's I I demonstrated that I have collected the proper number of points and you know wrote a little letter to Hasbro which I'm sure they didn't care about but so they send you they send you this toy in the mail so fast forward to 2019 in the current robot in the current siege line they have made reflector into a full size figure and because it's a full size figure it transforms into some sort of wax spaceship, but they know <laughs> that you're not buying it to transform it into a wax spaceship. What you're, tr what you're buying it is to transform it into one third of the components of the reflector camera, which means if you want to transform it into the reflector camera, you need to buy three of them. Right, or get that uh, San Diego comic. Full, no, 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 wait. You need to buy three of them at full price, which is $19 a piece. So if you want to make the camera, you have to buy $60 worth of toys. Except they know that then I also need one to keep in the box. So I have to buy four of them to transform into Reflector and one to put on the shelf in the archive. And then after you have bought four of these figures, then they will release the San Diego Comic-Con exclusive reflector box, which has all three of them in there in their original G1 colors. Right. Right. Yes. So you will also have to buy that. You're correct. I, I see now why I jumped the gun on that. That is uh, absolutely, uh, that is true. That is very true. And I remember the picture that you posted on Facebook of the four of them in your shopping cart. And I was yes. just like, yes, all is right with the world. And all is also desperately wrong with the world. Because Hasbro and I are officially enemies. Yeah, I know. Right. Me too. Although we are, we are enemies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I mean, speaking to this topic of evolving fandom and our evolving relationship with the company, uh, and, and I love how kind of personal this, this gets because we're, of course, talking about a lifelong emotional connection here. For me, speaking to anybody who has come into questions of their own gender, as I have over the course of the past two years, which have sort of reshaped my relationship to something called transformers, right? Uh, personally, because it is actually kind of damaging, I think, as a whole to think of any sort of gender transness as likened to transformers, right? Like trans people are not Optimus Prime. I hope we don't have to say that. But for me, as a just personally, I did ask myself a lot of questions about like, huh, why is it that the toys that I was always most drawn to, the toys where something was contained within another thing that looked like a different thing? And Transformers is very much that to me. And since sort of analyzing it that way, they've become more like comfort objects to me in a in a weird sort of way. And again, I'm speaking very personally on that. That's not something that I think everybody will identify with um, who, who has had you know questions of gender, but I, I do sort of find my way in on that. And I was also delighted to see in Hot Topic, where I shop regularly, they have a t-shirt from the Bumblebee movie, which I think is fantastic. And it's uh, got Bumblebee on it in his two forms 
was sort of a mock-up of the Back to the Future movie poster. And behind it, uh, so it's got the word trans in big letters, and behind it are the, the sort of light beams coming out from Bumblebee. And it totally is the trans flag. You can't you can't tell me otherwise. I don't think that's intentional, but I do think it's wonderful. So that's just my little sidebar about gender and transformers and transness. If you sort of closed your eyes or ears to that, then you can retune now. <laughs> but before we do that, as often is stated on this program, most of my work is in gender studies. The interesting part for me about transformers, that is less personal and more one of my students just this week in her thesis defense was like, you're so clinical in your application of theory. Mm -hmm. And I kind of am. Mm -hmm. I'm very able to sort of compartmentalize the personal part of this from the theoretical part. Mm -hmm. The interesting part for me about Transformers in terms of gender is that there have been quote-unquote female Transformers all the way back to 1985. Mm -hmm. That said... The first female toys for Transformers didn't happen until the mid-90s. Yep. There were no toys of those original female toys, mm -hmm. which is why fast forward to 2018, in the Hasbro line, the Combiner Wars line, they had a fan vote, and fans got to decide who the characters were going to be for a combiner team. They were going to make a new combiner team and fans got to pick who was going to be in that team. Fans chose Victorian mm -hmm. and Victorian is six female robots. So Transformers fans in 2018 decided to have an all female combiner team where those female Autobots didn't even exist as toys in their original 1985 inception. So yeah, I thought that was really cool. I think it's extremely cool. And I mean, yeah, like that is a whole sort of thing, as you know, we can, we can track, I mean, from, from when McDonald's kind of put out their Transformers Happy Meals in the nineties, responding to Beast Wars, they were at least in the case of Beast Machines paired with My Little Pony toys with the idea that the My Little Pony toys would be for the girls and the Beast Machines toys would be for the boys. McDonald's has since kind of moved away from uh, stating it like that, although they still do toys that are separated into girl marketed properties and boy marketed properties. They just don't call them for boys and for girls anymore. At least they're not supposed to. Unless they're the movie tie-ins. Yeah. When they're the movie tie-ins, whatever the movie is, they don't do gendered toys oh, right. that month or whatever. Right, exactly. Like now with the Star Wars thing, they're they're not um gender separated at all. But yeah, exactly. So so the the idea of Transformers as a quote unquote boys toy is I think happily changing. I look forward to any other sort of changes to that contextualization. Ultimately, the toys there's no reason why a robot from another planet has to have a gender. Right. <laughs> you know, that was always the thing that bothered me was like why why and then also why the girl robot toys had to have engineering such that their chest plate became <laughs> vaguely breast-like. Right. That kind of baffled me too. So I, looking at the clock, <laughs> I know, you, right? and, you and I both said, you know, we could do this all day, but our listeners don't want us to. That's true. So we've had a long and winding path about 
Transformers collecting, Transformers toys, Transformers history. It is Christmas, and Transformers figures heavily into my Christmas mythos, my Christmas memories, my quote-unquote greatest Christmas ever, uh, which was greatest Christmas ever from a material standpoint. And then looking back on it was also the denouement of my parents' marriage. But, (laughs) (laughs) so, you know bittersweet memories there i suppose yeah there's the birth of jesus and then there's what you had and they're like <laughs> right next to each other it's just, no they're not not in my head they're not of course <laughs> not in my head they're not at all my christmas memory from this christmas is very much a commercialized xmas mm. memory so I don't know. I, at the, it seems weird, but we always end up at this point, which is at the end of the day, Transformers, so what? I don't even know what to do with the so what this week. I do. Okay, I well, cool. So, it. Transformers, so I what? I think that the Transformers, so what question can be answered like this. Transformers, over the course of its history, which is now quite lengthy, has done a great job of creating a transmedial text, just like we were talking about earlier, literally from from practically day one. And what's great about that is that it creates a world that invites you to bring your own identity to it, bring yourself to it, bring your emotions to it, and put yourself into the universe in whatever capacity you feel like you can. That's why we can have a conversation where I can voice sort of how Transformers impacts my own transness, and somebody else can have a conversation about Transformers and how it impacts their masculinity or their femininity or whatever the case may be. Transformers itself does not deny us that. So I think it becomes extremely important because then it becomes a space where many, many, many different people can play. And I think it's our job as fans basically to say, basically to make sure that we never say to somebody else, oh, you can't play like that. Because all they're doing is bringing themselves into a transmedial space that, in the best of circumstances, is open to all. I think that's great. Cool. I think that's really great. For me, I guess the so what is Transformers is a trans historical text. And because it's a trans historical text, it provides us with much like Star Wars or Star Trek or any one of these kinds of popular culture properties that span generate literal generations at this point, it provides us with an opportunity to say your fandom of a thing is necessarily historically located. And because your fandom of a thing is necessarily historically located, it is okay for you to say, this is my Transformers. Your Transformers is not the same thing at all. And we can do some comparative analysis about that. But we are both fans of a thing and yet fans of two completely different things. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And that's why it's important, as I've beat the drum of several times on this program, that's why it's important to sort of transhistorically locate your fandom so that people aren't mad. Like, can't we all just be fans of a thing? No, because we're not fans of the same thing. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay. So your Transformers doesn't have to be mine. You can really like Beast Machines. And you can really say, that's the Transformers that I really love. And I can say... That's not my Transformers, and that's cool that you love that. Let me tell you about mine. Right. That offers opportunities for us to, you know, 
become fans of the umbrella property, right? Become fans of the umbrella thing. We can all say we're Star Wars fans, even if you like Return of the Jedi and I like Rogue One. Right. We can all be Star Wars fans, and they don't have to be the same thing. Right. Same same thing with Transformers. Absolutely. I mean, if there's if there is one thing we learned from Beast Machines, it's that tyranny requires conformity, and uh, goodness inspires liberation and individuality because that's what kind of the Maximals are. And I think that preserving that individuality operating in harmony with one another is fantastic. And on the converse of that, it sounds great to force everyone into your fandom, but the actual slug line on the back of G1 Megatron on his tech specs is peace through tyranny. Mm -hmm. We will all be at peace when I am in charge of everything. And (laughs) You don't want to be that kind of fan. No, please don't be that kind of fan. That's why we can't have nice things. Right. That kind of fan, that kind of fan is represented as the ultimate bad guy in the universe. <laughs> yeah. Don't be that fan. So that brings us to the end of our season finale. We will be back in the new year after everything sort of calms down from the holiday season. And we'll be back with season four with a bunch of new guests and a bunch of new topics and more roundtables and all the good stuff you've come to expect from the Deconstruction Workers podcast. So happy holidays to you, whatever holidays it is that you're into this winter season. For Jonathan Alexandratos, I am Dr. Christopher Bell. We have been the Deconstruction Workers. Thanks for joining me today, Jonathan. Thank you so much. Can we do an Autobots transform and roll out? Autobots transform transform and roll roll out. out. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Even better, become a sponsor of the show at patreon.com slash podcast DCW. Check out thedeconstructionworkers.com or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thedeconstructionworkers. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for the Deconstruction Workers podcast was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, please support alternative scholarship and academic public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is copyright 2019, all rights reserved.